Hey, welcome to the Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. Okay, I'm just going to do the Bible reading for us now. So I'll be reading from John 21 to 21. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone uh, had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and saw the other disciples, the one that Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started to the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight in the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned around toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, Jesus said, do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, and she told them, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and his disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Would you just join me in prayer as we pray for Mitch now? Lord God, we just thank you so much for Mitch and the blessing that he is to our community. We thank you for the message that he is going to bring us today. And we just pray that you will open our hearts and minds to receive this this good news, Lord. We pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. Friends, he is risen. 
Amen. I'll get off the stage now. That's all that needs to be said, isn't it? He is risen. What fantastic, wonderful news. Author Julian Barnes, he wrote a memoir called Nothing to be Frightened of. And Julian Barnes has a fear. In fact, he has a phobia, phantophobia. Now, phanta is, is the Greek word for death. So what do you think his phobia is? If he has a fear of death, he he's, has this crippling fear of dying. And in the book, he recounts all these horrific nightmares that he has of dying, of being eaten by crocodiles, shot in a bank robbery, locked in a car boot, buried alive. Now, the problem is with Julian Barnes is that he is agnostic. And he, in his book, he talks about how he actually wishes that Christianity was true. He calls it the great lie. It's just a Hollywood tragedy with a happy end. For Julian Barnes, life is just, oh, we're just a bunch of neurons that are made up of matter. There's nothing spiritual about us. Now, that fear of death that usually if you have a phobia, it's something irrational. You're afraid of something that you shouldn't be afraid of. But the fear of death actually makes sense in many ways. For death itself is not part of God's good creation. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in his brilliant resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll read here from verse 21, it says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all be made alive. But each in turn Christ the firstfruits then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death. It's this unnatural aspect of God's world. Now, we talk about there's only two certainties in life, death and taxes. But in God's purposes, death was not meant to be part of this world. Like many Christians sort of see death as just this resting state that, oh, we get to be with Jesus, which is fantastic. But do we see it here what the Apostle Paul sees it as? The last enemy to be destroyed. It's death. And this is what Jesus Christ has come to do. In John chapter 11, we get just this beautiful, beautiful insight into how death affects Jesus so profoundly. And it's a famous, famous narrative where Jesus resurrects Lazarus. And if you know the account, Jesus, Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick. Instead of going to him immediately to resurrect him, he stays back for a couple more days. And then when he gets to Lazarus' tomb, after four days, he approaches Lazarus' sister. And it says here from John eleven thirty three, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And two verses, the shortest two verses, shortest verse in all the Bible, just two words. 
Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Powerful, powerful stuff. Because we know Jesus is going to go into Lazarus' tomb, call out to Lazarus, and Lazarus is going to come back to life. So why would Jesus weep for the death of his friend? Because death is unnatural. And this is a problem when you use English as a translation or paraphrase of the Bible. When it says here, and Jesus saw them weeping, it says that he was deeply moved and in spirit and troubled. Now, literally, the Greek word there for troubled means something like furious. means deep anger. This, this something wrestling in your spirit where you're just so cranky at what is happening. And see, Jesus here, he's cranky at the death that has ruined his father's good creation. He is furious at seeing the evil and suffering and injustice that is around him. This is why Jesus is deeply moved. He's angry at evil and death. And this is why he weeps. In fact, this is why also too, when Jesus in the garden that night that he was betrayed, he is there weeping, saying, not my will, but yours be done. Death is unnatural, but Jesus has defeated it. As M has read for us from, we read John's account of the resurrection, and so far, Coming up to Easter, we have reflected upon the gospel author's accounts of the crucifixion. And now we finish that with the gospel of John. John gives us his magnificent account of Jesus' resurrection. And John equates Jesus' resurrection in similarly what we've designed here, thanks to Kerry and the team, a garden. Jesus resurrected in a garden. And John's gospel is different to the other gospels. John actually ties in his, his narrative as a new creation. If you ever go to Bible college and learn Greek, one of the first books of the Bible you learn is John. And John 1.1 1, 1 starts with logos. In the beginning was the word. Now, if you were a faithful Jew back in the first century... And you heard those work, words, N-R-K. You would have gone, huh, that sounds really familiar to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. N-R-K, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John here is linking back to creation itself. Jesus coming to bring in something new. And in fact, John alludes to a whole bunch of different Old Testament texts. He links back to Exodus, to Zechariah, to Ezekiel, and countless others. But John taps into this imagery of new creation time and time again. Another image that he taps into too is this idea of Exodus. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Literally, tabernacle set up his tent. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is the one to bring in the new humanity, new creation. Jesus is the one to live amongst his people. And John does this. His narrative is just brilliant. Jesus does seven signs 
and he says seven I am statements. And seven, if you know your Bible very well, it's the number of perfection or completeness. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is the one to bring in the new creation. Now, before we jump into John's resurrection narrative, we need to understand his crucifixion narrative a little bit. Well, I guess we've done the other gospels, so why not look at the crucifixion before seeing the significance of those words there in John 20. Now, I have some chocolate today, actually. I can bribe you all. So, question, what day of creation was humanity created on? What day was it? Anyone brave enough? There you go. I'll bribe you with multiple chocolates. Six day. Yeah, six day. There you go. Hey, lots of chocolates. Six day of creation. Now, what day is that for us, friends, today? What's the sixth day of the week? Friday. Okay. Now, this is all very deliberate part of John's imagery. On the sixth day, Jesus is crucified. In fact, some commentators have noticed that there, when Jesus is there before Pilate and Pilate places a crown on his heads, Pilate says, behold the man. And some New Testament commentators go, hey, this is sort of like this loose connection between the creation of man and with Jesus. Behold the man. Jesus is going to do something different, something profound. And John is the only gospel to identify that where Jesus is crucified, there is a garden next to him. Okay, he's buried, he's crucified, then there's this garden tomb that's nearby. And so as Jesus is walking up to Golgotha, carrying the cross, we have this kind of six-day image in our mind, the Friday, this behold the man, this garden, and then Jesus is crucified. And does anyone know, where is Jesus crucified? Is he crucified on the left, the right, or is it the middle? Which one is it? Middle. There you go. The middle. Now, here's another little fun fact for your Sunday morning. John uses the Greek word meson, middle. It only occurs in one other place in Scripture all the way back in Genesis. In the Mison, in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life. This is brilliant. I mean, John is just a phenomenal, actually all the gospel of us are phenomenal, but John is just so phenomenal in the depth that he gives. Now, after Jesus' death, John's the only one to tell us this. What happened? What does the Roman soldier do to Jesus? What do you do? What comes out? Water and blood. And so there's sort of these references to Zechariah 12, 6, where you look on the one who's pierced, or perhaps it's a reference to Numbers 25, 6, where Phineas, the high priest, pierced the sins of the Israelite man and Moabite woman. But it's also something deeper and looking with that creation imagery. How was Eve formed from Adam? What did God take from her? Side. That's, it's literally the Hebrew, it's side. So half his side is taken out to form a woman. And so what John is doing in describing the Jesus being pierced, it's a whole bunch of Old Testament images. But if we're keeping in our theme of Genesis, we're meant to think Adam's side made woman. 
Jesus' side is making a new humanity, a new bride. And of course, after the sixth day of creation, we have the Sabbath, a rest. And it's a brand new day. First day of the new week. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 20. We're told here early in, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So John is doing this is a brand new week. And just like at the creation of the world where there was darkness before there was light, Mary is rushing to this tomb while it is still dark because the new creation is about to happen. And as she came running to Simon and the other disciples, the one, um, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And we'll pause here for a sec. Let's think back to our creation imagery. So after Adam and Eve sinned and they're kicked out of the garden, who was blocking the way to, in, to enter back into Eden? What was there? Yeah, two angels. Couldn't get back into Eden. Now when the Israelites first built the tabernacle, they had like this lid over the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that, there was, can you guess it? Two angels. Now, on the curtains before the Holy of Holies, there was a curtain there. And can you guess what was on those curtains? Angels. You're starting to see a theme here. And so what John is doing, and he's showing us here, that as Mary puts her head inside the tomb, looks in and sees two angels, one at the head and one at the foot, this is quite powerful symbolism. This is saying the way to God is now free. In this strange roundabout way, this tomb, this place of death, now becomes a temple. It's a place of life because death has been defeated. And the angels ask her, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they have taken my Lord away and I do not know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Pause there. Mary thinking he was the gardener. Again, wonderful creation 
imagery there. Where's Adam and Eve dwell? Where do they live? In a garden. And so if you live in a garden, what do you do for a living? You're a gardener. A New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, he says about this, it wasn't after all such a silly mistake for Mary to think that Jesus, the true Adam, was the gardener. For many ways, Jesus is the new gardener, tasked with bringing God's new world order by uprooting the thorns, thistles, and to plant myrtles and cypress instead, as the prophecies from Isaiah 55, 11, 13 foretold. As Mary recognises Jesus, we are told... Well, I should say, yeah, we are told here that she cries out, Rabuni, which means teacher. And Jesus says something really strange, really quite weird here. He says here in verse 17, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell me, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Now, what, what seems to be happening when Jesus says, Do not hold on to me, Remember how in the garden Adam and Eve were told not to eat from the tree of the fruit? It's like here, Mary is actually obeying Jesus. It's part of this reversal of the curse of sin that instead of the woman reaching out and grabbing the fruit and then giving it to the man, now the woman here is letting go and obeying Jesus. It's just part of this new humanity, part of this new creation imagery which John is tapping into and then finally on the night that evening on the first day of the week when the disciples were together the doors are locked because they're fearful jesus stands among them and says peace with you and after this he shows them his hands and his side the disciples were overjoyed when he saw the lord when they saw the lord and again jesus said peace be with you as the father has sent me i am sending you and then he breathed on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's the last of John's linking back to Genesis. Just as Adam was formed in the dust and life is breathed into him, now Jesus comes as the new Adam to breathe new life on humanity. Now, there's a lot of fun little facts there for you for a Sunday morning, some things you can talk about at a dinner party when you're there next time. Did you know John's Gospel has all these Genesis links and themes? That's fun stuff, but what does that mean for us? What does the fact that Jesus' resurrection mean for me today in 2022? The Roman poet Cicero said, where there is life, there is hope. And humanity will cling to life in the worst of worst of situations because there's something deeply ingrained in us that life is good those have suffered through nazi concentration camps those have suffered the horrors of world war ii there are people there who in the midst of just this horror they just cling to life any bit of it because it's within us death is unnatural life is good and that's the point of the Gospels, is to show us that with Jesus' resurrection, we can live 
in the way that God intended us to be. I find it fascinating that if our purpose in life was to, and this is what I believe for a very long time, we die and kind of go to heaven and just sort of live as spirits. I thought we might live like Superman and be able to fly around in heaven. For a very long time, I believed that. Now, as I start to read the Gospels, understand the Bible better, recognize that I am Adam, I am a man, I am made of the Adama, the ground. In order for me to be in the image of God, this body is what needs to be. And that's the point of Jesus' resurrection. The Apostle Paul talks about Jesus Christ being the first fruits. First fruits of harvest were the, were the first fruits that would come. And then you get an understanding what the rest of the harvest would be like. Jesus' resurrected body, it's a foreshadowing of what our resurrected bodies will look like. And if you read the Gospels time and time again, we see some of the miracles of Jesus. He resurrects. Starting off with Jairus' daughter. The little girl that's sick, he tells her, Talitha kum, little girl, I tell you, rise up. The widow of Nain, her son is dead and Jesus touches him and his body comes back to life. We've already mentioned Lazarus. And in the early church, they continued this tradition of laying their hands and praying for the dead. Peter resurrects through the power of Jesus Christ, Tabitha. And Paul, that boy that fell out the window while he was preaching. There you go, that's a sign to stop preaching when people are falling out windows and dying but it's interesting isn't it if life was so terrible and bad why do we want people to be healed why do we want people to be resurrected because we know deep down within us like why do we us that we're meant for life that we're meant for life on this planet that's what jesus has come to do he's death it's the foreshadowing what's going to happen to us. Our bodies die, our spirits go up to paradise or heaven. But the end result is life eternal on planet Earth with him in the kingdom. Friends, we are the new humanity. But we still live on this side of the kingdom. We still live in a world of evil, pain, suffering, and tears. C.S. Lewis once wrote about the death of his wife in a book called A Grief Observed. At the time, C.S. Lewis actually wrote it in a different pen name because he didn't actually want people to know just the level of grief he went through at the death of his wife. And that grief there... It's quite natural. When you lose the loved one, we should be sad. We should be devastated. But we don't mourn as those who have no hope. For as the Apostle Paul said, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Quoting there from the prophet Hosea. Death itself is this unnatural thing in God's good creation. But it has been defeated. It has been overcome. And for me, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is in many ways the only hope that sustains me 
throughout some of the most difficult times in my life. I remember very clearly, it was that Easter about four years ago, Asher was literally resurrected. He went into cardiac arrest one Sunday morning and for about 30 minutes the nurses were just doing CPR on his heart. And then, this is all divine providence, uh, it was an ECMO team that happened to be there on a Sunday morning ready to put ECMO, which is heart-lung bypass, on another patient and she didn't need it. So there within 30 minutes we get the call and they just said, look, just be ready. It's over. And so I called my parents. We called our family just to let them know that this is the end. I remember just him sitting there on his bed. He was about eight weeks old at this point. This tiny little bubba, these tubes running out of him. Um, yeah, and he was so halfway between death and life. And I remember it's probably the only time I saw Rachel cry at that moment. We are pretty stoic throughout it all. And I just went up to his bed and I took his hand and I whispered and I said, oh, don't worry, mate. One day you and I will go for a walk and your heart won't be a problem. And that walk I referred to was a walk when the kingdom of God is here on this earth. Because honestly, that day I expected him to be buried six foot under the ground. And it was an absolute miracle that he survived that day. But for me, that was the hope that kept me going. That one day he will be resurrected. One day Rachel and I will be resurrected. One day all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be resurrected. And we will walk on this earth one day as God intended. The new Jerusalem, when it comes down that day, there will be no more pain, no more tears and no more suffering. Friends, he is risen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Yeah, Lord, as we just sit in the light of the resurrection, we just recognize the wonder and beauty of your word, just how it's so skillfully written, Lord, and we can draw so much out of it. But Lord, it just has such practical applications for us. Applications that we don't have to fear death because death has been defeated. The knowledge that one day we will walk on this planet, restored and renewed, serving you in the way that you intended from the very beginning. So far as we just live in a world this side of the kingdom, I pray, Lord, that we can just focus on the fact that you are risen, you are reigning, and that the final enemy death will be defeated on that day. So let's pray your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Jural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.